Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Grey Viking Games. Check them out with our affiliate code link in the description. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we're going to talk about white-black in an Astrod Midnight Hunt. This archetype has an overall win rate of 56.9%, which puts it kind of in the middle pack. It's behind blue-white, blue-black, as well as Simic and Selesnya. Selesnya is particularly surprising there because I think that there's a perception that I've contributed to, perhaps, that black is stronger than green. And so seeing the you know white paired with black perform worse than white paired with green is interesting. There, there's a lot to unpack about why that might be, but the overall win rate for this deck is kind of middle of the pack there, right? Like four color pairs perform better, so five perform worse. So really very much middle of the pack. You do have a lot of good cards. Black obviously has a lot of good cards. Basically, I think that there is synergy in white-black, but you're poorly strategically aligned in a way that makes your cards perform worse than the sum of their parts, despite the fact that on like an individual card pairing level, they should be working together, which is pretty unusual. Because like usually when we think about cards failing to like live up to their individual strength or exceed their individual strength, we would assume that that's an indication of a low synergy situation. But I don't think that's quite what's going on, right? Like we have cards that ask you to sacrifice stuff and we have things that make tokens and we have like cheap things that aren't that bad to sacrifice because they could come back. And like there's this go wide thing going on that's like, reasonably well supported and so it seems like the pieces should generally be there for a synergistic deck to come together but what's happening i think is that so i, I talked early on about black kind of setting the stage for the format through the strength of its removal and then that the next step from that is, okay, the removal's really good, so creatures die, so I want to play all value creatures. And in that context, it seems like white-black should be really good. Like, I can lay out an archetype skeleton that has plenty of playables where you don't play a single creature that costs three or more mana that doesn't do something for you uh, when it enters the battlefield or when it dies. And if your deck is all cheap stuff and value stuff, you line up pretty well against removal. And according to that first take, you should play well in the format. The problem is that's like level one. Level two is blue plays really well against this also, against like removal, because blue has some like raw card advantage, specifically in the form of organ order. But also, basically, there's like the Organ Hoarder and Eccentric Farmer, and then to a lesser degree, Mill Yourself Flashback, Otherworldly Gaze, that's doing this thing where you just start kind of like chaining into more graveyard stuff and generating value. 
and grinding out that way. The kind of like perpetual grind that blue, blue-green, blue-white enables exceeds the card plus token like or card plus life swing or card plus plus one counters or plus one plus one counters like basically like white black is all value but it's all really small ball and the value that's been offered to decks that do graveyard things and use flashback and use disturb in a robust way is more potent than the incremental grinding of white black and this is actually not totally unique to this format this is a kind of a fundamental dynamic that we see repeated with white black against blue um, kind of across the board in limited or arguably in magic in general where white and black has a lot of just like small ball little value grind you out type stuff but blue has the like real card draw engines real actual card advantage type stuff. And when white black is doing a bunch of small ball grindy stuff, it's not that hard for like a real engine or real card advantage to go over the top of that. And so then white black ends up needing to go under the people with real card advantage, which is I think the spot that white black is in here, where you want to have a low curve, try to be more aggressive, leverage the fact that the card advantage that you're getting is not extra cards in your hand as much as it's extra board presence. It's a creature that gave me uh, another creature or a creature that gave me counters or a creature that gave me a life swing. And so to kind of uh, leveraging the fact that you're getting a more immediate on the board kind of payoff to pressure your opponent, before they can do their like actual card quantity over the top grinding. Basically, I think that we're in a spot where the graveyard-based inevitability machines in this format trump the grinding offered by stuff like white-black in a way that pushes people to pressure the graveyard decks end the game before they chain their abundant resources into victory. And white-black isn't super fast, so it's not necessarily as well positioned to pressure people and end the game in that way. That's kind of the squeeze that they find themselves in, which means regardless of the fact that you might have some like little small ball synergies, those little small ball synergies while they do exist and they mean that certain cards play better with certain other cards and there are cards that you want specifically because you're white black together that other people won't use as well as you that doesn't change your strategic positioning or stop people from going over what you're doing and that's why even though there are a bunch of like independently good cards they're not better than some of their parts because they're all kind of like playing the same game and it's not necessarily a game that beats everyone that, I think, is my assessment of what's going on on a big picture level. As for what do you do about that, I don't necessarily think that white-black has the tools to kind of like shift position. It basically just has like cards that do the things that it does better or worse. And so you're really just looking for 
the good cards. And there are a lot of good cards available. And when white black is open, you can have a lot of them. But it, it really comes down to just, well, if you want your white black to be successful, you need to have good white and black cards. Like all of your white black decks want morbid opportunist. They all want ambitious farmhand. They all want ecstatic awakener. They all want lunar veteran and diagraph horde, flesh taker. And the more of that stuff you have, the more you're going to win because those cards are just really good. There are just a lot of cards available that win at a higher rate than like the archetype wins. And if you just play a bunch of cards that are good at winning games, your deck will probably be good at winning games. Which I think is to say, as far as like, when should you be in white-black, this is the kind of deck that you shouldn't just like choose to be because you like it or like look to shift into it or go like, oh, I have an Ecstatic Awakener, so I guess I'm pretty happy about getting this Clarion Cathar that gives me a 1-1 token that I can sacrifice to my Awakener, because there are plenty of things you can sacrifice to Awakener. You'd rather sack a zombie token anyway. You don't need to pair Ecstatic Awakener. Like, Ecstatic Awakener is a kind of card that historically, in Innistrad-type formats, would want to be part of this, like, white-black dead humans thing, where, like, white's good at making tokens, black sacrifices them. But because... Blue has stepped into this expendable token space so much, you just don't need to be white to do it. And in fact, you'd rather be blue to get your fodder. I think I think just a big part of what's happened is that blue got into the fodder game and it kind of stole the unique functionality of white with black in an Innistrad environment that involves like more sacrificing than most non-Innistrad sets do. And that kind of left white-black out in the cold. Yeah, all, all the stuff you're trying to do can almost just be done better by blue in terms of, well, if I want to like combine my like white early game or white aggression with some like, you know, kind of card advantage then I'd rather, instead of, you know, relying on, like, getting Morbid Awakener or drawing Morbid Awakener, or, like, uh, maybe trying to, like, grind out with Crawl from the Cellar as my source of card advantage, or, like, Diagraph Ward to go wide, I would rather have the Blue Graveyard stuff. Or if I'm black and I'm looking to sacrifice things to my Ecstatic Awakener, or find things to die to trigger my Morbid Opportunist, or, like, find a way to go wide to use my Siege Zombie, I would rather just get the tokens from blue that are more expendable and cheaper to acquire. So I guess you're white black when you can't be blue, really, because either one of the colors would rather do the thing with blue, but blue should be highly contested in the format. And maybe you're in a spot where, well, what I want to be doing with either my white cards or my black cards that would be done well with blue is the next black is it, like the other, the missing color. I have white cards. I wanted blue cards, well now I go to black instead, or vice versa, the missing color might be the next best option to accomplish the goals of the cards. Like uh, Ecstatic Awakener in particular, for example, I have Ecstatic Awakener, great, I want, to sac I want to find something to sacrifice to it. Ideally, that's a zombie token, look to blue, blue's cut, all right, what's the next best thing I can sacrifice if not a zombie token? Probably a human token, look to white to get that human token. And it is, it is harder to use Ecstatic Awakener with red or green than with blue or white. It's kind of weird that this whole archetype to me feels a little bit like it's a second best case, but I think that's the position that makes sense to me, both in terms of just thinking about what the cards are doing and thinking about win rates and what succeeds in this format.
Now, obviously, the spot where you take this and blue isn't obviously like some, you know, it's not always going to be the case that it's like, well, I was desperately looking for a blue card and couldn't find one. Or I started off blue and it was cut and I had to shift. You know, there there are things that can put you in white black. Like, oh, this is Lysa. It's uh, the the like better Baneslayer angel that's hard to cast, but it makes your creatures come back in addition to being a four or five flying lifelink. That card is a good reason to be white black. But that's kind of what I'm saying about you need just like really high, high card quality is the thing that gets you in here. And often that's going to be, well, I got past a flesh taker or a right of oblivion. Both of those cards are really good. So if you see either one of them, it's a good reason to be white black. But kind of what I'm saying is like both of the gold cards are really, really strong. But despite that, like white black doesn't play better than the other archetypes and that's kind of weird right like often the reason to be a particular color pair is that you get like good uncommons but like right of oblivion and flesh taker are both stronger than like faithful mending they're both stronger than corpse the whatever the blue black flashback card is corpse cobbling so you're you're getting at the like and then obviously also Lisa, like all the gold cards you're getting are great. They're basically better than the gold cards that any other color pair are offering. And you have like synergies with the commons that I've talked about, but it still just doesn't strategically put you in a better position than these other color pairs. But again, it's just a lot of raw card quality that's there. And so if it's open and you can get just like the good gold cards, and then white and black both have a lot of really good uncommons. In black, you get like Morbid Opportunist, uh, which is the two and a black, three, one that draws a card the first time a creature dies each turn. You get Foul Play, which is the removal spell that kills a creature with power two or less and makes a clue for two mana, one in black sorcery. Dreadhound, the uh, four black, black, six, six, mill three, whenever a creature goes to a graveyard, deal one to your opponent. And then in white, you get like Ambitious Farmhand, two mana, one, one, search for a planes. Coven, spend three mana, make it a 3-3 lifelink permanently. You get Gavany Dawnguard, the 3-3 for three that it starts the day-night cycle, and whenever it flips, you get to look for a card and put it in your hand. You get Dualcraft Trainer, the Coven 3-3 that gives something first double strike. These are a bunch of solid uncommons. And then, you know, you get just like the good commons in black that are the draws to, you know, blue, black, and all that. You get, you know, your ecstatic awakeners, your diagraph horde, and then just like the, you know, the great removal suite. And all of that stuff plays well in this format. And like in white, you get Lunark Veteran, which, you know, you're still making tokens and you're like sacrificing it and then taking getting value off the back half. And then you get your like search party captain on all the good white four drops being like Clarion Cathar and Gavin e. Silversmith going with the search party captain. There is an issue, I guess, with both of these colors. The two and three mana commons are a little bit unexciting. Siege Zombie plays pretty well because you're going wide with like, you know, assorted tokens. And but like the, the next most successful uh, two drop in this color combination is actually Cathar Commando, the three one for two with flash that sacrifices to disenchant uh performing better than like candle whatever it is which the um, coven gets flyer thing or like novice occultist the one two that draws a card when it dies none of these cards are very exciting you have to play some two drops but 
they're all kind of whatever. And then at three, you have like the best performing three mana common in this archetype is Arrogant Outlaw, which is surprising because it's not very good, but also surprising in a funny way where it's like, oh, it's like Vampire Spawn, where this card is so much worse than Vampire Spawn that we kind of write it off. Then it overperforms in an archetype that has a bunch of like, you know, playable one and two drops and like can push damage reasonably easily with like Siege Zombie and stuff. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, I guess if it's going to be, you know, doing the Vampire Spawn pretty thing pretty often, I guess it's not that weird that it's not a bad card because we we do know that Drain for Two is kind of better than it looks. And then Hobbling Zombie as kind of another way to make tokens and stuff. But the the two and three mana spot is definitely where this deck suffers. You have, you know, I mentioned Ecstatic Awakener and Lunar Better, and you also have Gavity Trapper at one. You have more than you could want at four. You have Diagraph four to five. And if that's not good enough, it's not bad to also play the Griff. But you end up playing some filler at two and three. And one thing that we see there is Unruly Mob getting play because of his synergies with things. But then we have a good amount of data that says that Unruly Mob is a trap and you shouldn't put it in your deck and it's not good. And But the same thing happens where there are just a lot of bad threes that end up getting played because there aren't very many threes. And so we see like a really low game and hand win rate for a bunch of like threes that where they're, you know, when I when I do my search on 17 lands to see what cards are people playing a lot and losing with, and it's just a bunch of three drops that people play because they don't have better options, but the cards are really bad, like Shady Traveler, which is the uh, menace werewolf that flips into a 4-4 four, four menace, 2-3 front side. Ritual Guardian, which is the 3-2. Coven gets lifelinks. Celestis Sanctifier, which is the 3-2 that looks at two cards and puts one in your graveyard when you flip between day and night. None of those cards are any good, but like, it's not like I'm thrilled to be putting Arrogant Outlaws or Hobbling Zombies in my deck, and I probably want something that costs three, so here we go. I think the actual solution to this problem is, uh, according to the data, to play No Way Out a little bit more than you would otherwise be inclined to. No Way Out has a much better win percentage, like much better than uh, those like bad creatures. And I personally have found myself a little bit down on No Way Out in blue-black, but that makes sense because blue has a bunch of good threes. Blue has uh, Falcon Abomination and Flip Switch, and then at Uncommon, you have the Archivist, and you would just rather play those and you end up not really having room for no way out. Whereas if you are white black and you don't have good threes, then you might as well just play no way out and get some cards out of your opponent's hand and get a token that you can sacrifice instead of playing a creature that's, you know, not great in combat anyway, and mostly just there to be a body, just get your expendable body that you can use for the stuff you're trying to use things for and, don't waste a card on it. I guess uh, while I'm talking about traps, I will also mention Murkrat Behemoth and Flare of Faith and Candle Trap and Homestead Courage as other cards that you should really be avoiding in this archetype. These are things that people play, you know, reasonably more often than their win rates, which suggest they should. And then the, uh, you know, similar analysis where I look, what are the cards that win a lot and people don't play them very much? Uh, cards that you should consider playing more than you might be are No Way Out, Arrogant Outlaw, and Bless Defiance. 
I guess blessed defiance segues nicely into another point that supports the arrogant outlaw thing that I want to talk about, which is that white black is not good at making flyers in this set. If you think back to Silver Quill in Strixhaven, white black was like all about flyers and evasion and uh, like getting points in, and that was really successful, and that was the thing that it was that white black was doing. That gave it this, you know, I'm clocking my opponent, but I'm not the fastest, but I'm pretty inevitable kind of white-black feel in a very different way than however this deck is trying to do it. Here, like your flyers are like, well, my Lunark veteran will die and I'll get a 1-1, or maybe I'll play a Morning Patrol and it'll die and I'll get a 2-1 flyer, or maybe I'll make a bat from my Bat Whisperer, or maybe I'll spend 5 mana for a 3-4 flyer. But you don't or, you know, maybe my two drop will pick up flying on my turn to hit you for two. But you don't have a lot of flying, and you're not very good at blocking opposing flyers. And given that you're looking to play a little bit of a longer game, you're uh, definitely trying to, like, set up and play, like, a large game, go kind of wide, get to the point where you have mana to use your Gaffney Trapper after having kind of played out your hand. The life gain stuff goes a long way to not just like dying to an opposing random, you know, two two flyer or something. So that's that's one of the spots where like arrogant outlaw and blessed defiance help out. And the fact that you don't have evasion in this archetype is part of why uh, candle trap struggles because you know the the part where you make your opponent's creature have defender that defender does meaningfully get in the way of you starting to push a little bit of damage because you're you're attacking on the ground instead of in the air. Not not a big deal, but you know, that's a factor. And then obviously just like, you know. So Candle Trap and Silverbolt both don't do well in white black. And I would point to, you know, the you don't want to play a lot of removal. Black has good removal, so you don't need to use the white and artifact bad removal spells. You want to be playing Eaten Alive, Olivia's Midnight Hunt, Defenestrate, Foul Play, Rite of Oblivion, Infernal Grasp. You just have plenty of removal without going to the tier down outside of black. Following on the removal point, it's also just dangerous to play too much removal in this format for all the reasons that I've talked about, about how the format's kind of defined by trying to make your opponent's removal not that good. So you want, you know, enough to get by, get rid of their, like, few important things, but mostly just, like, you know, I'm going to have some 3-3s and 4-4s and... Uh, I'm going to attack with those after killing the couple creatures that are big enough to block. Or maybe I, you know, get shut down and I just want to siege a zombie anyway or something, as long as I can stay alive. And I maybe don't need to kill your threat because I have a Lunark veteran and I can gain life that's going to outpace it. Or I have a Gavany Trapper or whatever. When I've talked about, like, large games and small games, I think white-black is definitely a large game deck. You have a bunch of, like, go-wide type stuff. You have tappers you have Siege Zombie, you're pretty happy if there's a board stall and you're just kind of like doing that stuff. And then like, you know, you get this big crowded board and then you eventually draw your like Flesh Taker and you can start attacking with you when you have a bunch of like objects around to make combat awkward for your opponent. And then given that you want a large board, obviously removal spells that make game the game smaller doesn't necessarily, you know, if you have too much of that, you end up playing into the blue game that you're losing, where you're just like one for one you, one for one you, get a tiny edge from this like random token or whatever, and they're like, 
okay, cool, we've played a long game, you cleared the board, I'm going to draw a bunch of cards and start attacking with my organ hoarders. Going, all right, you got me. So you want, you want to use you know removal sparingly and only play the really good removal if you can get access to the good removal, which you should. Because if you don't, you probably shouldn't be in this archetype. I think that's basically the story here is there's a bunch of good cards available. You need to just make sure you have them because so much of the power of this format is coming from the graveyard. And while you have some of that like graveyard stuff, you have, you know, your Lunar Veterans and your Crawl from the Cellars and everything. You don't have anything that's enabling the graveyard. You just have to, like, hope your opponent trades off or something or kills your guys. And then you can use a little bit of that. But you're, you're not getting an engine out of the graveyard the way a lot of decks are. And one kind of, like, saving grace is you, are, you have a bunch of graveyard hate. So you can try to force your opponent to play fair. And that, that's kind of the spot that white-black in general tries to excel, is like cut off my opponent's plan and sources of card advantage, you know, discard and removal and stuff that's generally designed to like break up their engines and stuff. But I just think that it's hard. It's hard to break up their engines. And you can kind of like slow them down a little bit, but it's really hard to make their decks like not function. So you end up needing to, you know, at some point get to the point where it's just like, here's the thing my deck does, here's the thing your deck does, let's see how those line up. I'm going to say that covers my lecture, and I want to take a minute here. Obviously, where we're going with this is anyone here in Twitch chat with any questions, uh, hit me. Happy to cover anything I haven't talked about, whether you've already asked or not. While I'm waiting for that, thank you very much, Adam, Don, and Wanderflame, my new patrons over at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. Really appreciate the support. For anyone else who's thinking about that, wants to head over to our website, check out the offerings there, see if you want to uh, support the program. I've mentioned getting notes uh, for the shows and getting to vote on next topics. One thing that we offer that I often forget to mention, you also get access to my full 17 lands data uh, logs for all of my drafts ever, and all of my games, all that. If you ever want to check out how I'm approaching the format in really precise detail, you can look at every turn I've ever played. So just want to, I, I think I've failed to mention that one, so I figured I should at some point. As for questions, do I like borrowed time in white-black? It's fine. I mean, it's it's a strong card. I would say there's the same situation that there is with all of the, like, just every removal spell is slightly discounted in white-black because there are so many other options, but it is a strong card. I do talk about how um, I don't like enchantments that remove things because they're kind of like sorcery speed by nature and they can get destroyed, but... Oblivion Ring type effects have continued to be successful where pacifism type cards have stopped being successful just in terms of like what the data and experience shows. A lot of that is, well, there are a bunch of just random static abilities like Lunark Veteran and Dualcraft Trainer and Gavany Dawnguard that like auras don't prevent. But uh, Oblivion Ring style effects like Borrowed Time do actually answer all of those cards. 
And so that's that's a big liability that the pacifism type stuff has that borrowed time doesn't. So I, I do think that you know enchantment removal is rare enough and having the versatile hard answer to anything is good enough that it's a strong card even though it's sorcery and even though it technically can get destroyed and stuff. So good, nothing special, just you know, in line with other good removal. As far as like its win rates, it's behind Rite of Oblivion and Fall Play, really like right next to Infernal Grasp, better than the Black Common removals. De- definitely a good card, just not something that I'm super excited about, but definitely something I'm happy to play and I'm going to take it, you know, over m- most comments. Next question is about white-black aggressive rather than like grindy white-black. And yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't put quite sufficiently fine point on it, but yes, I do think that white-black fundamentally wants to be aggressive and wants to be attacking in this format. I think that you are way more likely to lose to your opponent going over the top because you tried to go too big than you are going to lose because you like, you know, tried to apply pressure and petered out or whatever. I mean, that it's going to feel like that's what's happening either way, I guess, when they grind you out. But I, I do think that you want to focus on getting your opponent dead and uh, leveraging the like tempo aspects of your the value that you're getting. How important is uh, the specific uncommon flesh taker to this archetype? I don't think it's like you need a flesh taker in particular. I think it's more just like that is a good card that you get. Because it's not like there's a whole bunch of stuff that's like pay that where it's like, oh, I really need to be able to sacrifice this, or it's really valuable to be able to sacrifice something at instant speed or whatever. It's just this is, you know, just a good rate, good card, lets me pressure my opponent, gives me a big attacker, but there are other ways to attack people and it's in a very similar spot to Ecstatic Awakener you can use instead. Was the first sign in a draft that we are happy to be committed to black white? Is it a late Flash Taker slash Rite of Oblivion. Yeah, I mean, the earliest sign you can get that you're happy to be white-black is just opening uh, Lysa. But normally, yeah, I mean, getting a, you know, fourth or fifth pick type Flash Taker or Rite of Oblivion is a pretty strong signal that it's a reasonable place to be if you are positioned to shift into it. Why is Candle Trap bad removal? It's expensive to actually exile something, plus requiring setup of having Coven in an archetype that's kind of medium at it. Like you can do it. You do have some zeros, ones, twos, and threes, but it's not hard to end up with a white-black deck where you just have like all twos and threes or all ones and twos for a while. And then because you have like a bunch of like random two power creatures or something, the thing that you put it on might be like, you know, serving as a functional wall for one of your creatures. And again, you just have more better removal and you don't want too high a density of removal. I think you want just a little bit of white black. This is more of a generalized question about how highly you prioritize gold cards in an archetype that's like medium rather than something I'm excited to be committed about, I think or committed to, and because I'm not looking to be white-black, uh, I would definitely view the commitment as a cost, or I will expect, like, I'll be thinking about, you know, like, with Rite of Oblivion, if I take a Rite of Oblivion, say, like, first or second pick, I'm not necessarily committing to white-black. I'm thinking that I might splash that card, uh, especially if I'm a deck that mills myself well, then it's going to play really well with jack-o'-lanterns in 
a green or blue deck that is also white or black and then splash into the other one. Whereas Flesh Taker is a much higher commitment. So even though Flesh Taker wins more in white-black than Rite of Oblivion, I'm actually more likely to take Rite of Oblivion early than Flesh Taker because it's a better splash. With both of them, uh, you know, they're good cards that I'm going to discount slightly based on the fact that they don't necessarily directly lead to an archetype I want to be in. I'm not sure how much more precise I can get than that. Next question. I know Behemoth is not the greatest creature, but with all the decayed tokens, I thought the card would play more like 6-6 six, six for 6 in the previous sets. Could I talk about why it has underperformed so much? Yes. The reason that it has underperformed so much is because a 6-6 six, six for 6 is awful in this format. There was actually a 6-6 six, six for 6 in original Innistrad that was like wildly unplayable. The nature of kind of Innistrad sets in general is pretty punishing to huge creatures. There are just like a lot of tokens around that can block them, a lot of really good removal, a lot of synergistic stuff happening that they don't participate in. And then this set you know, goes much further on the good hard removal that's pretty agnostic about the size of the creature that it's killing. And also, while it's very easy to have a creature to sacrifice to Mercret Behemoth, there's also just other stuff you can do with that creature, so it's not free to sacrifice it. And so you're going down something plus a bunch of mana to invest in a single body that can get killed. And basically, I don't want to invest five mana in a body in a single body regardless of whether i have to pay an additional cost i want to get like if i'm going to put that much mana into a card i want to get immediate value i want to get two tokens off diagraph or i want to just you know kill my opponent the turn it came into play by alpha striking with dreadhound i don't want just some like big idiot that dies to removal i get that there's you know the meme about being slayer is bad because doomblade but in this format, it's just really true that I don't want to invest that much mana in a single body. There are just better things you can do. Next up, had a few drafts where good black creatures are open, Diagraph Ward slash Awakener, but I see no removal. Does that mean I should be particularly avoiding black-white or discounting how open black actually is? I also have had some drafts recently where I've ended up in black decks and not had removal because I value the removal a little bit lower than other people. Like, I'm not looking to first pick black removal, and I think a bunch of people still do, and I just don't have it. Does that mean that you should be avoiding it or doing something differently? My personal take is sometimes you'll just not have removal, and that's okay. You can just, like, beat people by going wide with, you know, siege zombie them for a while with some zombie tokens that you got from your diagraph hordes, and then alpha strike, or, you know, tap down their guys with Gabony Trapper, or make a big creature with, like, Ecstatic Koikiner and Gavney Silversmith or whatever. I'm not like that attached to having removal. Sometimes I'd add Ubon, but whatever. You can, you know, obviously like shift up your prioritization of uh, removal when you get partway through a draft and you're behind. But basically, I don't expect black to be open in a way where I'm the only black drafter at the table. There's going to be someone else and I'm fighting them on cards. And if they're taking all the removal and they're giving me all the Diagraph Hordes and Awakeners, uh, that's just a trade I'm willing to have to deal with. And as long as they're passing me enough just quality cards for my deck, I, I'm kind of willing to just assume I can make it work somehow. Next question. My experience with Rotten Reunion seems better than what the stats suggest, like in White Black. There's useful stuff to exile and it makes fodder for you. Yeah, I get that. And I've that's definitely not the first I've heard of people uh, saying they've had good experiences with Rotten Reunion. 
I think it's reasonable to play generally just one, but sometimes more, especially if you don't have a lot of like diagraph words, so you're looking for the removal. It also gets a lot better the more like morbid opportunists and ecstatic awakeners and stuff like that you have, especially the less other fodder you have. I do think you want to be careful with it since it is a card that's often just fundamentally putting you down a card eventually. But I do think that it's like a reasonable, a reasonable way to get stuff to sacrifice if your deck is really in the market for more sacrifice, more stuff to sacrifice. Next question, how much do you count uh, Awakener toward the three drop slot? Really depends on how good you are at making a creature that you want to sacrifice for one or two mana. Once you're talking about like, does this Ecstatic Awakener let me curve out? Because it's not letting you, like, it's not giving you something to spend three mana on on turn three, unless you're good at putting yourself in that position on turn two. That said, basically, if I'm short on threes, I'm not going to count it as a three unless I'm long on twos that are good to sacrifice. If I'm long on threes, I'm going to note that, oh, I'm going to play a three, and then I'm going to play another three, and then I'm going to play another three, and when am I going to find the mana to use my Ecstatic Awakener? So it's like, I guess it kind of, I kind of think of it the way that I think about a three mana removal spell, or just like a three mana spell, where it's not so much this is a turn three play as this is a play that's going to occupy three of my mana at some point. I, d I don't know if you have a great infrastructure for extrapolating what that means about your curve, but I think that like the way that I would think about it in my curve is comparable to how I would think about like no way out of my curve. Next question, Bat Whisper ranks high in the archetype. Is that just the, is that because of the flyer, just an extra body to sacrifice? I would suggest that Bat Whisper also ranks kind of high in blue black. It's just not a bad card. Like it kind of looks like a bad card, but it's actually a fine card. It struggles in both places just because there are so many good fours and it's kind of like borderline slash on the fence good four, but it's it's not a bad card. If you are looking for a four, there's nothing wrong with putting it in your deck. And that's kind of just true regardless of what color combination you are. I think it's totally fine in literally every black color combination as just like an okay rate four drop. Just it gives you, you know, five, three worth of stats across different bodies with a little bit of keyword action, then that's a fine rate. Next question, what creature versus spell counts should we target in white-black? I don't tend to think about things in that way, but relatively high creature count, like 15-ish creatures, I want to say, 15 plus. I, I would start getting, it's one of those archetypes where I'd get really worried if I were at or below 13, when I often don't worry much about that kind of thing. Next question, why do you think can't stay away performs so poorly? That's the white-black rare that reanimates a cheap card. So I mentioned that white-black can use its graveyard, but where it really struggles compared to other color combinations in this format is that it's not enabling the graveyard. This is basically just a more narrow, worse crawl from the seller because you're spending an extra mana up front. You can't get a large discount in terms of total mana you spend on it because you can only get a cheap creature and you don't get the plus one plus one counter. And I mean, it's a gold rare instead of a common that you can kind of get whenever. But like a lot of what you want to do with Carl from the Cellar is get back like a bomb or powerful creature kind of like later in the game. And the savings that you ultimately get in getting the creature back into play don't really come close to making up for the flexibility of the like readily available mediocre common. 
Is there a place for Cathars Call in White Black deck with a strong sack theme? No. If this set is kind of like defined by good removal, then auras that don't protect the creature you put it on or give you substantial immediate value wouldn't be expected to do well because you just get two for one. And we see that with Cathars Call and especially the Unruly Mob enchantment performing just absolutely horribly. Next question, how good is Morning Patrol? Feels mediocre in blue-white and maybe worse than filler in uh, black-white. Should we be playing No Way Out over this card? Yes. you. This The stats pretty strongly indicate that you should be playing No Way Out over Morning Patrol. Morning Patrol is kind of like late-string filler. Like, you would rather play any of the, you know... You, you would rather play Arrogant Outlaw or Hobbling Zombie or No Way Out or Good Uncommons but it's better than Shady Traveler and Ritual Guardian and Celestia Sanctifier. So it's kind of like middle of the road of the three drops that exist, but that's because so many of the three drops that exist are really bad. The, the sets just doesn't give you a good rate at three relative to what it offers. Like it, you just get so much more for the extra mana at four and you don't get very much for paying more for paying three than you get for paying two across like most of these creatures. So they just aren't very good. And that's just how the curve ends up working out. Really, you just want two drops in search party captains so you don't have to play threes. Next question, is it bad to play multiple trappers because they could tie up too much of your mana? I think so. Yes. I like to be careful about how many trappers I'm playing. I considerably discount my priority of each additional trapper. I'm going to wrap it up there. So that's Black White. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And I will be back next week with whatever it is people want me to talk about. Yep. <laughs> Have a good week. And bye. Speed.